Good morning and welcome to episode 23 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm podcast. This is Lee. It is Tuesday, June 18th, and I'm glad you're tuning in with me to a very unscripted, unrehearsed, and unedited podcast per usual. But you guys are so understanding and so focused on learning more about your bees and doing the best by your bees that you seem to be willing to put up with uh, with this. I want to start out by reading you um, a little message I got from a listener that is the most hilarious and wonderful message. I just love it. And then I'm going to talk to you, that's going to be the, the fun part, and then I'm going to talk to you about some serious challenges I have in one of my yards. Um, but let me start with this funny letter. This is from Philip, who is in eastern North Carolina. And I got this message. It was it was funny to me. I woke up in the night and I saw this message on my phone. And I read the first line on, on my phone. It said, please take my following comments with love and respect. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to read this. Because you know when anybody starts a conversation with something like, you're probably not going to want to hear this. But <laughs> I thought, this will make me not sleep. So I'm not going to read it. So I got up the next morning and found it. And this is the the note I got on Facebook on the Five Apple Farm Bees Honey and More Facebook page. Please take my following comments with love and respect for you. I'm definitely not a podcaster. I only in the last two months ever listened to a podcast and all I've ever listened to are bee podcasts. I found yours last week from a post someone made on the North Carolina Beekeepers page and I started with episode 20. I couldn't wait to hear a local podcaster do info about our North Carolina bees. You almost put me to sleep reading all that junk in episode 20. So boring. That's in all caps with lots of exclamations. If I wanted to hear someone read someone else's opinions, I'd go pick up a book on CD or print out a PDF to read myself. So I cut you off midway and planned to delete you from my list. Then a couple days later, I was riding down a road, and I decided to give your podcast another shot because I'd already downloaded a couple of episodes, and I was in a bad area for good radio. And I just want to pause here and say, Philip, I love the honesty in this because I have listened to many a thing (laughs) because there's no radio, and I'll listen to whatever I have downloaded on my phone, so I can totally relate to that. Okay, back to your letter. I was in a bad area for good radio. I started from the beginning at episode one. I'm so glad I did. You're really good at it and very helpful at describing different techniques. I've listened to every single one and 95% of them are exactly what I was looking for. I can't wait till you make the next one, but please stop reading others' books or notes on the whole podcast. I'm not listening to hear their opinions. I'm listening to hear yours. You're full of knowledge. Share your knowledge with us and reference those old pros, but please just don't read their work anymore. Respectfully, Philip. Philip, this letter made my day so much because, one, I'm honored that you would want to hear my opinion because I'm just one person and I'm just telling you stuff that I found to be true or that I've read, but I I hate to break it to you, but I am going to still read other people's stuff because they have lots more experience and different experience. Now, I will try to start including a warning at the beginning of the podcast, Philip, don't listen to this one if I read an article. But at the same time, I would invite you to listen to those articles too because um, th- I'm, I'm only picking people to read that I feel like are true long-term pros 
and good researchers and stuff, people that will give us solid information. So, um, but I will, Philip, try to warn you and definitely don't listen to those when you're on a long highway drive trying to stay awake. <laughs> I do understand. So thank you. You absolutely made my day. That was just delightful. And any of you who would like to give me feedback, or stories of <laughs> uh, where you listen and what you like and what you don't too. But you know, be nice. Uh, but as you can, because I do get my, I can get my feelings hurt. But um, I just love hearing from you guys, and it it really does keep me going. Like this week, for example. So I had been talking to you the other day about I had uh, two little hives, smallish hives that were made from splits. Um, that I just didn't like the looks of and I'd ordered one of the European fowl brood test kits uh, from one of the bee companies. The first bee company was out of stock and they didn't tell me till about four days later so I had to reorder it from, I did manage to get it from Better Bee and these are a little kit that you can test for European fowl brood. Now let me stop here. Um, in all the research that I've done on this, I noticed online a lot of people hear the word foul brood and they think that American and European are the same thing. And they're, they may have similar visual effects on your brood pattern. And they may be, um, they're both bacteria, but it's the difference, <laughs> it's the difference between a teddy bear and a grizzly because in my opinion, um, European fowl brood is a bacteria. I will not kill you with my pronunciation of bacterial names. Even as a nurse, I can't, I can't do this. But um, it's a bacteria, but it is not a spore-forming bacteria. American fowl brood, American fowl brood is a spore-forming bacteria. And the difference in that is, you know, it's it's relatively easy to kill a bacteria. Relatively easy. But if it forms a spore, those things uh, uh, just about, well, I started to say they could survive a nuclear war, but it turns out that irradiation is one way to get rid of them. And I do wish we had an irradiation um, facility in our area. I know that's going to sound strange for a, a very organic, non-chemical non beekeeper, but, um, it, you know, radiation will indeed kill everything uh, in there. And... And there's times when if you really want to clean up a large amount of equipment, it would be nice. Um, up in the Northeast, they have facilities where bee clubs can go in, you put all your stuff on a pallet, and they run them through and zap it, you know, kind of microwave it, and it really uh, comes out with any living, without any living creepy crawlies, and that would be a good thing in terms of uh, bacteria. Um, but so American fowl brood forms these spores that can literally live in equipment for more than 50 years. Yes, years, 50 years. And this is why you hear the recommendation, don't buy used equipment. Don't get used equipment. And, um, I see this all the time on Facebook. People go, oh, I got a whole truckload of used equipment. And there are things you can do. I, I mean, for example, you know, if you knew exactly what happened to that equipment, like, um, you know, why the beekeepers getting rid of it? Why did the bees, why are there not bees in that equipment is your big question. Um, if if it's a known event, then that's that's one thing. But if it's just kind of unknown equipment, I mean, I saw advertisement the other day of a, of a area 
bee club that I guess had come into possession of, you know, just a whole truckload of, of used equipment. And I was very disturbed that on the notice that was sent out um, about that equipment that there there weren't instructions for cleaning it up. Um, one of the best ways, and I'm talking about woodenware, not wax. You can't clean wax up without the irradiation, but uh, at least to my knowledge. I, th I think there is a, a chemical method, but I'm not going to get, I don't know about that. But anyway, um, you can't clean up wax. And so with boxes and woodenware, should you get some used and, and need to use it for any reason, um, what you want to do is scorch the inside of it. And you can look up online how to scorch it. I think you can do it with one of the handheld propane torches, which is something I am going to add to my tool <laughs> tool shed because um, you you can basically scorch the in You scrape everything, all the woodenware, the boxes, whatever it is, really thoroughly. Um, in England, I notice in there, uh, they also will scrub it with um, some type of washing soda, a caustic washing so soda. I don't want to get into that, but um, there is also a, a, a 1 to 9 bleach to water dip and scrub that you can do. So in, a, in addition to scraping it, scrubbing it with bleach water, and scorching it, you can probably get rid of almost everything. But Americans foul brood, if there is a spore in a corner under a speck of propolis, uh, it's still there and it can live 50 years. And so that's why be very cautious with used equipment. Um, now, so what happened in my yard was I had been watching these hives. They just weren't okay. Um, they, they weren't building up like the others that were made at the same time. I was kept looking at the the brood comb, and it was it was patchy. It was a shotgun pattern of capped brood, but at the time, at first, I didn't see any dead brood in the empty cells. So, and this is a um, a characteristic of hygienic bees; they clean out the disease larvae so quick that sometimes it's you can't see them of what was see what they look like, what the dead larvae look like. But finally, they got with that delay in getting the test from the company they did I did find some frames with uh, dead larvae on them uh, these were open larvae who had died the only way you could tell that well they were dying is they were slightly yellowish that was pretty much the only uh, the only symptom was they were slightly yellowish and some of them looked kind of melty in the bottom um, I've heard this referred to as snot brood, not attractive, but quite descriptive of, uh, and I mentioned before that the field test you can do to rule out, uh, fairly reliably, to rule out American fowl brood is in one of those icky, dead, snot brood, melted brood frames, take a matchstick or a thin stick of some kind, stir it all around, and then very slowly retract the matchstick out of the cell. If it sticks to it, um, you know, like um, snot that comes out, then you definitely want to do a more advanced test because you could be dealing with American foul brood. And that is the one where literally people burn equipment to get rid of it. Now, European foul brood looks just as gross, but it doesn't, it's just more liquidy. Um, nothing ropes out of there. And then with this little European foul brood uh, test, you can um, 
uh, I think it's by Vita Life or Vita B or something. It seems to be a European company, but it's this little plastic bag and you stir around some dead larva and you put it in a solution, you shake it up, and then you put the solution on a little testing thing that looks all the world like a, a pregnancy test, but this is pregnant with all the wrong thing test. Um, a friend of mine who is a young beekeeper but very has really advanced very quickly was super helpful in this whole process because sadly in her I don't know second or third year of beekeeping she got a bad case of European fowl brood in her yard I think she said probably from catching a swarm and this is why I've told you I'm I am now as if I wasn't careful with swarms before I am now super more careful with the swarms after my bad experience because when I went back through my records and I tried to figure out you know what was the first sign did I see any sign of this you know last year because unfortunately European fowl brood can also last in uh, wax and woodenware for a few years um, and I thought back and I don't know this for sure because these fowl broods they're out there they're out there in the natural world and um, and I thought back to a swarm that I did catch last summer. It it just wasn't okay. The queen was mated, but it just never built up, and it petered out, and it actually died in the summer. And I have never had that happen. They did not have bad mites. I, I had verified that. Um, but they died in the summer, and I think that's the only hive I have ever had in all these years die in the summer. And, but... I didn't see anything that concerned me in the comb and so I probably reused the comb that they were on and there's the possibility that I then exposed um, other hives to European fowl brood. I mean I'm just kind of making this up but that's the best I can figure because I, I haven't seen it widespread. Look, it's just in two hives and knock on wood it is still just in two hives but now I'm taking super precautions because so on the two hives that were troublesome, um, I had already on one of them kind of proactively uh, did a shook swarm. And so basically I shook all the bees off of the bad comb and put them on new new comb that to the best of my knowledge was clean. And I started feeding them. And I was, um, and I also requeened at that point. I actually requeened both of them. That's my usual go-to method for any kind of faulty anything is to requeen. And um, I had hoped on the the first one that that would do better, but by the time I got the test I did confirm that it was European fowl brood. I went into a deep funk because I have never had a, a, a true brood illness in my yard. This was my home yard. And it's amazing how much um <laughs> I talked to an another Buddhist friend who how much um shame there is involved when you have something go wrong in your bee yard, even if you've been doing your best and maybe like me, you've been using the same methods that all the years prior have have stood you in good stead, everything has been going great, and then something goes wrong and as I know, there's always a high likelihood that whatever has gone wrong is beekeeper error. And, um, I mean, I have plenty of that. And everybody who's been in bees will have plenty of beekeeper error. But it was interesting. You know, I just felt awful. I felt like I'd done something terribly wrong and um, that 
you know, what did I know, especially good grief doing a podcast, what did I know? And here I was, I had a sick hive. Well, luckily, this is where beekeeper friends really come in handy because I made calls and texts and emails to some of my more experienced beekeeper friends and most everybody has dealt with some kind of disease in their yard and if you do it long enough it's pretty much inevitable that you will. My young beekeeper friend who bless her heart started out dealing with this challenge and she finally got it cleaned up out of her yard but she gave me some great tips uh, that I also came across in the research articles about for example keeping separate sets of tools and jackets and um, for each yard and this is something that just for convenience I had done um, I have an out yard box a toolbox that lives in my carport and a bee jacket that lives in my car so that when I go to um, outlying yards and then I have the stuff that um, lives in a box here at my home yard so hopefully that has helped me avoid spreading it to any other um, yards I'm only seeing it in these two little hives unfortunately in my home yard but my home yards also where I do all kinds of experiments and splits and kind of push the bees harder than in my out yard so that makes sense because um, what most people with experience said to me and including my bee inspector uh, who we happen to have a good one and I emailed him right away to um, find out if European foul brood is a reportable illness in North Carolina and it's not it is uh, American foul brood is the only thing that you know you're kind of legal well not kind of you're legally obligated to report and they're legally obligated to um, help you get rid of it uh, but European foul brood is not I just wanted to find out what was the um, you know the most current information and also I wanted to find out if he was seeing it in the area and he was um, he told me about a couple of of yards of people that um, that are good beekeepers who had had cases and who had talked to him about it and then I know my friend um, the young beekeeper is also a very good beekeeper and so again you know it's I don't know if you're if you're sensitive if you're a tough person then you're well cut out for beekeeping if you're a sensitive person it's gonna be a rough ride <laughs> but I can tell you I not just me but I know several beekeepers who are just very I will say sensitive people and um, and it's it's tough it's it's a blow when you get something like this so there I was with one hive um, that definitely had European foul brood based on the test I'm just assuming that the other one um, is also European foul brood. I did rule out American foul brood on both of them. But the tests are not cheap, and so I only used one of them. I have another one, a test that I ordered, I ordered two that I'm keeping in spare. And then my bee inspector said that they also have tests available that I can call him if I ever have any more trouble to get the testing kits. And they actually use the same uh, testing kit. So um, here I was with two sick hives um, with an illness that I had never seen in my yard and it gave me the opportunity to do a bunch of sad <laughs> sad bummed out research but I'm going to share with you some things that I've found to both prevent and hopefully avoid running into this in your yard but maybe most importantly to encourage you to keep your eyes open and don't turn away if you see weird troublesome things in your beehives. 
So just to back up a bit, European foul brood, this bacteria, from what I read uh, in several articles, it said the brood food becomes infected with the bacteria, then the larvae become infected and die. Now, another big difference is with European foul brood, it is the open brood that dies, not the capped brood. And that's something with American foul brood, the bad one, the really bad one, um, sunken cappings are one of the hallmarks. So you, with with capped brood, there will be perforations on the top of the capped brood, but that can happen with a lot of things just when they're opening it up to clean out larvae for whatever reason. But kind of sunken uh, brood, and if you open up that cap and the larvae inside are dead, and then especially doing the rope test, that's that's the big bad American foul brood. But the just plain bad um, European foul brood is mostly uh, the open brood. So the thing to look for is yellowish larvae. Um, they they talk in the articles about a whole twisted posture of the larvae. They call I think they call it the gut pain um, because it is a, a, a basis I guess an infection of the gut. Um, the gut pain pose where the larvae instead of being curled in their little perfect C on the bottom of that cell, there it's kind of like they become a little corkscrewish. But that I noticed that is not real obvious. Um, and believe me, I spent some time investigating this. I put on my super magnifiers that I use for queen grafting and took a flashlight and the frames because I, I'm like, you know, if I'm going to have this bad thing happen, I want to learn about it. And I, uh, you know, shook my bees off a frame that was bad and really spent time studying on the gross little larvae and their, what they look like. And so now, fortunately and unfortunately, I have a real good visual um, visual recognition of what this looks like. So if I ever see it again, I will probably know. Um, so they're yellowish. And it's really interesting that after you've seen some yellowish brood, if you then, you know, do your full infection control cleanup and go to a healthy hive, the brood looks so white. I mean, they just look so gleaming white compared to unhealthy brood. Um, and so this is another benefit of kind of visually comparing your hives uh, to each other. Now, um, going from hive to hive presents an issue. Well, first of all, let me back up. Uh, European foul brood um, is considered an opportunistic infection. It's something that apparently, I guess, exists out there quite a bit but the bees can usually handle it um, and it usually only uh, gets ahead of them if they are under if they are weak for some reason or under some kind of stress because like I said everybody asked me when I talked to them about it well you know what kind of stress have your bees been under and again I did a lot of thinking and you know I hadn't had the perception that my bees were under stress um, but then when I really started thinking about it, we had had several weeks of extremely unusually dry weather for our area, which not only will dry up nectar, but I think will limit their pollen options. And the pollen is the real nutritional powerhouse uh, because um, that's the protein. And so if they are basically protein starved, they begin to get weak. And not to mention that that would be mostly where their vitamins and minerals probably come from. Um, and so we had those several weeks. My Everybody that, all my hives 
had plenty of honey frames, but here again, um, there is a difference between honey frames and incoming nectar. You know, honey they see as their their uh, emergency stash, and it also has to be watered down to feed. And um, then, you know, for them to water it down to feed, you don't want to water down honey, or you don't want to feed honey, um, period, end of story. Because if they're, they, all that, gosh, this is a big thing. And actually my friend who got it, her other, besides the swarm, her other suspicion of how she got it in her yard uh, widespread was uh, uh, putting out honey super partially filled and letting the bees rob it out in order to clean the frames. The upside of that is they get the frames, the wax really clean, they will lick it dry. The downside of that is if there is a speck of disease in that box, then now it is now spread to all your hives. Doesn't mean they're going to come down with it because again, uh, European fowl brood is very much an opportunistic that jumps on them when they're weak. So here it was, I had split them, that's a stress. We had had that dry spell, that's a stress. The beekeeper error came in when I really thought that they were, they because they were heavy, um, I was, in my mind, I was thinking they don't need feeding. Now, this is kind of ironic because you know, I tell you to always feed nukes and packages, feed them, feed them, feed them, no matter what's coming in, because that keeps them from getting too stressed and also allows them to build comb. Well, these guys had all, had all drawn comb. They'd been split under drawn comb. So in my mind, they didn't need feeding. And in hindsight, I think I may have made a mistake there. And so we had the dry spell, my lack of feeding, the stress of the split, and then we had like a week of torrential rain. And one of the things that can make European fowl brood worse is chilly, damp conditions. And so after that, uh, you know, mini drought, then we have this torrential rain and it got chilly the nights got down to the 40s here in the mountains and um so i think all of those things might have been a one-two punch to these two particular bees hives so like i said the one of the first things i did when i first just saw that they didn't look good was requeen and so here's where it got a little complicated because i used two queens of another uh of a queen line that i'm trying out from a queen breeder that I was pretty excited about, and I, I still am excited about, but I don't know what to think, because they, um, you know, if a hive is too far gone, requeening is not going to help. They can't overcome that. And particularly with a brood disease, one of the reasons they can't overcome that is that queen may be robust, and she's laying like crazy, but because a few, a few generations of brood have not happened or have come out sickly, those are the nurse bees and maybe the faltering nurse bees and maybe not enough nurse bees to feed all that brood that that strong young queen is pumping out. So in European fowl brood, it's a double whammy because there's not enough nurse bees. And this was all brought to my attention by the bee inspector. And it was one of those things that once he said it, I was like, oh yeah, right, I know that. But I couldn't bring it up because I was under stress. So I was so glad, thank you, Lewis, for uh, reminding me of that, that adding nurse bees or adding combs of capped brood that are emerging um, can be really helpful to any hive that's faltering. Now you want to do that carefully because if you're taking capped brood out of another hive then you're setting them back a little bit. But I had hives uh, in the same yard that were so robust and so booming that I actually needed to slow them down a little bit 
Um, and so, because they're not honey production hives, they're hives that I'm uh, using for other queen rearing things. I need to slow them down, and so I had plenty of a cap of frames of capped brood to share. So what I had to do is I had to come to a decision point of whether I was going to cull these hives, and by that you you can get in a situation where you actually want to exterminate a hive humanely because it has become essentially a repository of illness in your yard. Remember that when a hive gets weak, it gets very prone to be robbed out. And in all this TLC you've been giving them, they probably have a lot of stores and then they're getting less bees, weaker bees, other bees at the first sign of it being hard going out in the world, they're like, well, hey, there's this weak hive. We can totally go in there and rob out all their stuff. Uh, bees are happy to do that. And unfortunately, this spreads um, disease. So that's the thing. In all cases, you do not want any hive getting robbed out, A. But B, you don't want any weak hive that might have a disease or have mites to spread around getting robbed out because then you have just inoculated your whole yard with either disease or mites or, or whatever. Um, this is part of the unnaturalness of having a bunch of hives in one uh, bee yard because as from the Seeley article, um, the, you know, in nature, out in the forest, wild hives are spread by a lot of, of room, you know, maybe a mile, a half mile. Um, I can't remember what he said now, but it was a bunch. Uh, and that, so anyway, so we have this unnatural setting in a bee yard of them being so close together so they can just go rob out their neighbor and spread that disease around. There are also worse, you know, repercussions from this from a um, kind of epidemiology point of view. Be well, I just won't go into that, but having, having, being able to infect a neighbor works to the advantage of the disease or the mite in a way that nature, having things spread out, um, has eliminated. So I'll go into that later. But um, so my question was, was I even going to try to save these hives? And I thought long and hard. Um, in fact, I had almost made the decision, you know, I'm just going to cull them. And you can do that with, um, you can look it up, it's a sad thing, but you can, you can cull a hive with uh, soapy water or or alcohol, depending on um, uh, the size of the hive. So I was almost to the point of deciding, you know, I'm just going to cut my losses, cull these hives, and try to get this disease out of my yard. But then, also, um, I was watching that over the couple weeks it took me to figure this out, my other hives were still staying healthy, staying strong, and I was watching them. I had started vigorous infection control, meaning changing my gloves um, between hives. And also, since the bleach water works, if you happen to wear the nurse gloves, the latex gloves, um, or non-nitrile, sorry, not don't wear the latex, that's bad, uh, the nitrile gloves, you can also, if they're not dirty, you know, if they don't have wax and propolis stuck on them, um, I have my spray bottle of bleach out there and you can actually spray your bleach solution on your gloves and clean them off and then not have to change them, you know, between, um, uh, I mean, I should say between healthy hives. If it's a disease hive, you, you want to take, you know, it's worth a pair of gloves to not um, spread anything on your hands. And then also I had um, set aside a hive tool for just working with those hives and, um, because you don't want to be sticking that into other hives. And at the end of the day, I was, um, or at the end of actually in between 
in between hives because I've gotten paranoid. Um, I was sticking the hive tool down in my smoker in the hot uh, hot wood to sterilize it and then also spraying it down, wiping it down with the bleach solution. Um, so the question was whether to cull these hives or not. So because I had uh, resources to spare in a lot of uh, good healthy hives and because I felt like I had not given these queens a chance and this would actually be kind of a test um, to see how they do but I had to give them a fair fighting chance. So what I did after I shook all the bees off of their bad comb, put them on clean comb, disposed completely of the bad comb which is quite a loss of comb but I don't want to take a chance on reusing it. Then I took an entire box, I assembled a box of capped and emerging brood from a few other hives that I needed to thin out. These are eight frame boxes. This is actually what Michael Palmer calls a bee bomb that he uses, uh, that's bee bomb in a good way, that he uses to strengthen cell builder hives. But I took these, these were hopefully hive renewal boxes. Each of them got a box almost full of Captain Emerging Brood and they got a feeder and today I'm going to add a little bit of pollen patty just a tiny bit at a time because it can attract small hive beetle. And I'm going to give these guys a chance. So I'm still using super infection control between everything. There is the risk that they could potentially infect nearby hives. There is that risk. Luckily we seem to be getting a flow starting. It's not much but it's starting and most cases of European fowl brood will actually clear on their own with a flow. So hopefully, hopefully that's going to keep the nearby hives safe as can be, as anybody can be in this world. And then we'll see what happens whether I can get these hives to turn around. And I know I'm going long in this podcast. I apologize for that. But I want to read you, Philip, watch out. I'm about to read an article, but it's short. Um, I want to read you something from Honey Bee Sweet. That's Honey, B-E-E, and then S-U-I-T-E, which is Rusty Blue, um, who is just a great blogger. She has one of the most solid educational blogs, I think, out there. And I want to read you this because I can't tell you the number of times I've seen um, on Facebook in particular, you know, I've complained that getting bee advice on Facebook is a real mixed bag. That if somebody was like, um, oh, I have a little hive, it looks sick, something's not right. And then all these people jump in and say, oh, combine it with a healthy hive. And (laughs) you could be infecting your healthy hive and that little hive might or might not be worth saving. So don't automatically do that. Really stop and think. If you have a hive that's dwindled, that's just puny, figure out as best you can why it's puny and do you want to take a chance on your healthy hive by combining those two. So Rusty Blue has a great little short article about should I try to save a failing colony. Should you try to save a failing colony? Rusty Blue. Lots of new beekeepers ask how they can save a failing colony, but the real question I think is should you even try? Could you be doing more harm than good? If you find a colony that is obviously declining, you have three choices. You can let it collapse or exterminate. You can combine it with another or you can try to revive it. 
before you decide, you need to make an educated guess about why it's combining collapsing. Sorry, you need to make an educated guess about why it's collapsing in the first place. Only then can you make a good decision about the next step. I say educated guess because sometimes, even after we evaluate all the evidence, we are still unsure of the cause of failure. But that shouldn't stop us from trying because sometimes the reason jumps out and we learn a lot in the process. What to look for? The first thing to do, weather permitting, is to inspect the colony frame by frame. Some things to look for include, does it have a queen? Is there brood? Are food stores available? Do you see signs of brood disease? Are there signs of mites, such as guanine, guanine deposits or deformed wings? Do you see signs of other predators, such as mice or shrews? Is the colony being attacked by other invertebrates, such as wasps or plundering honeybees? Is excrement accumulating inside the hive? Deciding on the next steps. Your decision on whether or not to try to save the remaining bees should be based on what you find, but also the time and the resources you have available. Trying to save a dying colony may require much more time and effort and the colony may die anyway. On the other hand, the process can be a valuable learning experience. The go or no-go decision should depend on what you find as well as your goals. What lies within? When you search for your queen, you will either find one or not. If there is no queen and the colony is very small, there is little chance to re for recovery even if you add a new queen. If bee numbers are too small, there may not be enough individuals to defend the hive, care for the queen, forage, and raise brood. Plus, brood rearing will get off to a slow start because the tiny colony can only care for a small amount of brood. But the more important question is, why is there no queen? If you see no queen and you see signs of disease, I would delete the rest of those bees rather than try to save them. Most bee diseases and parasites are transmissible from hive to hive, so why let the remaining bees infect a healthy colony? Different problems require different tactics. If the colony is dying of nosema, brood diseases, virus, or mites, there is no reason to combine them and no reason to allow them to drift. Spreading disease is not what good beekeepers do. I would recommend killing the remainder, a spray of soapy water works well, and cleaning up the equipment in the way recommended for the particular problem you find. Treating for mites in an extremely weak or dying colony has no real advantages. If the colony is dying from mite-vectored viruses, the bees that remain are, more likely, are most likely already infected with the virus, so even if you kill the mites, the bees will not recover. At best, they will die in the hive. At worst, they will spread mites and disease to other hives. If the hive died due to American foul brood, you need to burn the hives to contain the spread of disease spores. If you don't want to burn your bees, I suggest killing them first and then burning the equipment. New evidence suggests that some bee diseases are transmissible between bee species so the wild bees. If this is true, allowing diseased bees to remain in the environment may be hurting the native species as well as the honeybee. This is a serious issue that needs to be considered. You find the queen and she looks fine. If you find a queen and she looks normal, look carefully at the brood. Is the brood in a tight pattern? Is it mostly worker brood or mostly drones? Are the bees caring for the brood or ignoring it? Look carefully here. Just because you have a queen doesn't mean she is functioning properly. You could have a drone layer. You could have an inbred queen laying diploid drones, and you could have an infertile queen and laying workers. 
In a case where the queen isn't functioning properly, even when no disease is present, there's no point in feeding, treating, pollen supplementation, or any stopgap measures. Without a laying queen, the colony cannot continue. If you want to save them, the remaining breeze can provide you with a new queen, or let's see, if you want to save them, the re, if you let me try again. If you want to save the remaining bees, you can provide them with a new queen or provide them with frames of open brood from which they can raise a queen. Remember though, it takes time, food resources, and plenty of workers to raise a new queen. And in a dying colony, you may have none of these things. Requeening doesn't always work. Requeening may seem like a simple solution, but as I mentioned above, if there are not enough bees to take care of the colony, you may be wasting your money. The best queen in the world cannot reverse a dying colony if she also doesn't have a clean environment, an adequate workforce, and plenty of resources. If you decide that the present queen is fine, or if you decide to requeen, you can add capped brood to the hive. Capped brood will begin providing workers almost immediately and the influx of bee power may be enough to turn things around, but you can't get something for nothing. Remember that while adding brood helps one colony, it weakens another. Make sure the donor colony is strong enough to withstand the loss. Combine with caution. The third option for handling a failing colony is to combine it with another so that you can save the bees if nothing else. Above all, be certain that the weak colony is free from disease and parasites before you combine. And when you do combine, use standard techniques such as introduction through newspaper. As with all aspects of beekeeping, there are a dozen ways to handle a failing hive. But regardless of the method you choose, you should begin by assessing the colony to find out why it is weak in the first place. Once you make that educated guess, you can let them die or exterminate, combine it with another, or try to turn it around. Ultimately, the decision is yours. But remember this, we want to save the bees, all the bees, so keep the larger picture in mind, especially when diseases are present. This was an article by Rusty Ballou at Honey Bee Sweet, and it's called, Should You Try to Save a Failing Colony? And so Honey Bee Sweet is honey B-E-E-S-U-I-T-E dot com. I highly recommend that blog. So thanks for sticking with me on this extra long one. I think it's some of this is pretty much bummer content, but there's nothing to be gained, in my opinion, by pretending like a bad thing is not happening in your hive. I think it's much better to just face it, uh, be courageous, farmer up, <laughs> and, um, and, and deal with it in an ethical and thoughtful way. At least that would be my hope of um, what to do when I encounter problems. But I am hoping you are encountering absolute robust hives in your yard. That is what I wish for all of you. And as we learn even about the tough stuff, that is our goal. And as Rusty Ballou said beautifully that it is the larger picture, all the bees that we care about. And so this caution and um, making hard decisions sometimes is on behalf of that uh, greater good. Have a wonderful week. I hope to be back on this weekend with, and I'll make a point to pick something cheery <laughs> since this one was about the, the harder side of beekeeping. Thank you every single one for listening. It really means a lot to me.